This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Thomas Jefferson considered Samuel Adams the earliest, most active, and most persevering of the revolution. Yet when we think of the founders, his name is often missing, submerged by other founders, his cousin John Adams or John Hancock or obviously Washington and Jefferson himself. Now Stacy Schiff does what she does brilliantly, using her Pulitzer Prize-winning skills as a biographer to bring to life the revolution, the politics, the propaganda, and the man who insidiously and deliberately became a revolutionary of the first order, resurrecting a man history has almost forgotten, a man without whom our history might have taken a different course. I am delighted to welcome to Just the Right Book, Stacy Schiff, the author of The Revolutionary, Sam Adams, a book that has appropriately been described as exquisite and fast-paced. So, Stacy, let's start with this. Until middle age, you describe Samuel Adams, who was born in 1722, 13 years older than his second cousin, John, 21 years older than Jefferson, as a perfect failure. A graying widower, inexpensively and unremarkably dressed, all loose ends and blighted promise, holding off his father's creditors, ran his family's malt business into the ground. Yet he, like many contemporaries of well-to-do established fathers, went to Boston Latin, then Harvard. What went wrong from there in his first act? (laughs) What does it say that I find it really endearing that he just completely (laughs) failed across the board? Um, Part of what went wrong is that the family is early on ruined by a very arbitrary act of parliament, which shuts down a banking venture that Samuel Adams Sr. had been involved in. So Adams's future, which might have been um, rosier, turns out to be more complicated. But it's very clear from the start that his mind is in the clouds, that his Mm. mind is on politics. He very briefly has a job in an accounting firm. The head of the firm is a very popular Bostonian, a friend of the family's. Adams works there for a couple of months and then his employer basically says he's a very able-bodied young man, but he can't seem to think of anything but politics. So there's a streak of idealism that's really there from the beginning. John Adams will say of his cousin that he had the most exalted sense of liberty of anyone. And I think the, the exalted sense of liberty manifested in a young man as sort of aimlessness. And there's a free-spiritedness in a funny way in those years. It seems to me that every week there's another gift I need to send for a wedding, a new home, a bridal shower, or just like to be nice. And the place I go to is Uncommon Goods. If you want to avoid boring, basic, and bland gifts this year, this is super. One of my favorite things is a tray where you could put the address and they show you like a little longitude, latitude map for it. And when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. And 
you know, I think that's what we all need to be doing. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods has high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S. products. They're just out of the ordinary and you feel like you're really picking out a great gift. So from art to jewelry to kitchen to home and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So here's what you can do. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash writebook. That's uncommongoods.com slash writebook, and you'll get 15% off plus a great gift to send. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. One of the things that really took me aback, which is probably evidence of my lack of education or something, but we've all heard about the ride of Paul Revere and his warning that the British were coming. But I certainly never understood that he was predominantly riding to Lexington to protect and warn Adams, who was already considered a resurrectionist. So what did he do to have earned that reputation? Because it's not that long after his, you know, sad sense of failure. What had he done so quickly that made the British determined to take him to account? So let let me start with Paul Revere's ride. I I realized the book had to start there because— I love the description. Thank you. I love it. For that, we have Paul Revere to thank because he writes three accounts of—many years later, he writes three accounts of his own ride, which is why we have dialogue, thank goodness. But it occurred to me one day that we all know that Paul Revere gets on a horse in mid-April 1775 and rides off at top speed west. But when you think about it, I anyway never thought, where was he going exactly? And the answer is that he's been sent by Dr. Joseph Warren in Boston— to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock that they are about to be either arrested or assassinated. That's the message he's meant to impart. And and he goes directly to the the parsonage in Lexington where he knows the two of them are staying. They are at this point the two proscribed traitors. And they are so, in answer to your question, because more than anyone, Adams has been behind essentially every act of civil disobedience in these years, often without leaving a lot of fingerprints, always tirelessly, unwaveringly, even when everyone else has deserted the cause. But whenever there's any kind of subversive act or subversive committee, he's somewhere in or near it. And that is witnessed by every Crown official in Boston who keep writing these, for us, very colorful letters back to London about this Machiavelli of chaos, Samuel Adams, who is unrelenting in his colonial demands. So he's done pretty much everything he can to be a thorn in the the administrative side. So there's two strands I want to cover from that comment. One is, as I read about his what, what was it called? The Journal of, Journal of Occurrences. Occurrences. His approach to protest and activism using, you know, up to 30 aliases and this journal. Pseudonyms. Pseudonyms, pseudonyms. sounds so much better okay. than aliases. Oh, you're right. It sounds so much less sinister, You're right. It? But speaking of sinister, it struck me that what he was doing was not journalism, 
But propaganda, that he became exquisitely accomplished at figuring out how to package this news to rile everybody up. So he's both of those things. Uh, first of all, propaganda and journalism are a little interchangeable in these years. We should, yeah, we I should want to come back straight to that. Off. I want to come back but to that. But he does two things which are both of them fascinating and both of them deeply involving. The first is that he is writing for the papers. Very early on, he's recognized to be very able with a pen. And he's sort of ghostwriting for other people. And often writing petitions from the Massachusetts House of Representatives because he's understood to be a very eloquent writer. Over the next years, between basically the Stamp Act riots and Paul Revere's ride, he writes ceaselessly for the newspapers under what I can count as at least 30, but probably more pseudonyms. And, you know, it's often two different pseudonyms in the same newspaper. There's one year in 1769, I think I counted a different pseudonym every month. I mean, he's just churning this stuff out. And often these are anthems to liberty. They're things that really clearly resonate with readers in Boston. And we know that partly through this extraordinary collection of newspapers that was kept by a sort of obsessive hardware store owner with the amazing name of Harbottle Door. And Harbottle Not Door, really. seriously, I, I think we need to name our pets Harbottle. Harbottle Door realized in 1765 that, that, that something was up, that there was sort of history being made. And he begins a collection of newspapers. He keeps every day, every weekly newspaper, and he marks them up. And he often identifies for us Samuel Adams' pseudonyms, but he also responds in the margins to what Adams is writing. And so you can see how hmm. what Adams is saying— Contemporaneously. Is, contemporaneously, exactly. So you can see how—which is an extraordinary thing. You can see how Adams is being read and how he's being heard. So that Arbital Dorr, this you know man in the street, will write next to a few lines of Adams's where Adams will say— Government is meant to be responsive to the people, not the people to the government. And Harbottle Door will write, "This is my creed." In the margin, mm. you know, it's just it's and 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 whenever the name of the royal governor appears, oh, the villain, you know, the vile assassin, you know, all of these wonderful comments. So we know a lot about what Adams is writing and how it's being read, both from those many papers and from things like those annotations. But then there's this other, slightly more sketchy part of the of the propaganda scene which is that during the, when troops marched into Boston in 1768, Adams and a group of friends found sort of a news syndicate, which is the Journal of Occurrences, where they essentially invent conflicts, confrontations, assaults between the British soldiery and the townspeople in Boston. So there are constantly muskets being pointed at people, bayonets in the face, women being assaulted, old women being pushed aside, you know, attempted rapes, all kinds of things. And they'll write up these very lurid accounts and they'll dispatch them to Philadelphia and to New York where they are published. And then only later do they come back to Boston when nobody really remembers if this ever happened. So it's this extraordinary sensationalistic stuff, which, which the then administration is sort of being driven crazy by because this is so inflammatory. And as Thomas Hutchinson will say, with this kind of fictive confrontation, how are we going to stop there ever being an actual one? And of course, it leads right up to the Boston Massacre. And the other part of this that was interesting to understand that Adams realized that the colonies were going to have to be united. And in resisting British rules or regulations or taxation, and that it sounds as if this 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 journal that got distributed within the colonies 
acted as a way to unify everyone in being offended on behalf of Boston. He's very good at opening this up and making everyone realize that the rights of one colony should become the rights of all. And that if one town is martyred, then the next town, you know, has, has the same thing to fear in the future. And he'll do that over and over again, where it's most evident is with the Committees of Correspondence, which is, has this kind of deadly dull name for an obvious reason. The obvious reason being it was a sort of guerrilla operation to essentially connect all of the first towns in Massachusetts and ultimately all the towns in the colonies so that, in fact, everyone would be on the same page politically. And the Committees of Correspondence is something he thinks about for quite a while, finally gets off the ground in 1772. It seems like a really treacherous idea at first and a ridiculous idea in the eyes of the crown officials. And then it very quickly takes off so that by the spring, half the towns in Massachusetts have these committees, which are communicating with each other. So it's as if he's kind of wired the entire seaboard for revolution. So let's go back to the crown and the British. So the British start figuring out that it's costing them more to protect the colonies than the revenue that they're collecting. And so Gage and others of the British are figuring out, well, we got to come up with some plan here. So they start the sugar act and the stamp tax. And what was the relationship between the British and Boston before they started bringing this up? And how out of touch were they with the colonies in thinking this was going to be it's just not a big deal. There you hit the nub of the matter. Benign neglect would be the answer to your question earlier. There have been there have been collisions with royal authority as far back as, as the 17th century. Part of the problem is that the relationship is very ill, strangely ill-defined. It's very vague. Parliament is never mentioned, for example, in the Massachusetts Charter. So no one is really certain of what the relationship is in terms of loyalty to the crown, to the king, yes, but does parliament actually um, regulate colonial affairs. Kind of unclear. It has not been an issue because in the course of the many wars, no one has ever thought to question the relationship. The wars have been expensive. There are still troops defending the colonies. And the reports that London is hearing is of tremendous wealth in the colonies. So there's this feeling of, wait, we can raise some revenue. These people seem to be doing, these people we've kind of forgotten about who are over there somewhere. Um, and they didn't even really know, some people didn't even really know where there was, right? I mean, I, was, I love these accounts of, you know, Philadelphia is either in the West Indies or the East Indies. No one's quite certain. Which. And they think maybe it's an island. Boston and Philadelphia are islands. Islands. Exactly, islands. I mean, there's just a tremendous arrogance on the part of the British. I mean, someone mentions in 1772 that there was probably another, never another case of a mother country knowing so little of her colonies as Great Britain did at that point of North America. So there's just a complete disconnect and there's a real tone deafness where very few, I mean, opposition in Parliament obviously does, but very few people stop to say, you know, you're killing the golden goose here by leveling these taxes. The colonies can't support this kind of revenue, this kind of extraction of revenue. You really want to rethink this. And whenever word gets back, it tends to kind of just sort of evaporate in in the London air. Nobody really takes it all that seriously. So that there's just this colossal disconnect between the ideas that are brewing in North America and what London thinks to the point where when the Tea Act finally is put into place, and the Tea Act is really, in 1773, has nothing really to do with 
with raising revenue. It more has to do with bailing out the East India Company. Um, no one in and London- And it was going to lower the price was, of tea, As right? many of these duties would have, many yeah. of these acts would have done. But many people at that point, no one in London realizes that the words tea and liberty are utterly intertwined in America because the, that the fact that this is about ideas has never really occurred to most people who were actually administrating for the colonies. And did England have any notion that Samuel Adams or Otis or some of the others were acting purely on principle? You know, principle is such an interesting word in retrospect. No. The assumption being that Adams in particular, and this is over and over in the in the letters of governors and lieutenant governors, this comes up. Adams in particular is understood to be kind of a bad egg and eager to upset things because he is penniless and a desperado. And it's under it's just assumed that because he's a bankrupt and doesn't have any money, he's he wants to just upend the entire system. No one seems to think he's acting from principle. No one seems to remember that he's actually a, a well-born son who's downwardly mobile, which is a different item from someone who grew up in poverty. And I think the opposite is also true. I think it was hard for Adams to believe that anyone who was wealthy could be principled. So I think it went both ways. Mm. I want to come back because this was a surprise to me. You talk about in the book that it would be another hundred years, if I have this right, where there was a distinction between propaganda and journalism. I think I wrote that in a piece. Yes. Uh, so what did that look like along the way? What did it look like in Samuel Adams' time? And then how did the process start to divert the two? I don't think that happens until much, much later. Adams is still completely, I mean, these papers He's are full. He's totally of, a propagandist. He's... Um, he's singing Come a lot on, of Stacey. anthems. <laughs> he's singing a lot of anthems to American liberty, which depending on which side you're on, you might say we're propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Certainly the Journal of Occurrences things. I mean, I guess that the answer to your question is, is best answered by this. After the Boston Massacre, when everyone except two of the soldiers who have fired on civilians is exonerated, and the case has been tried decently, effectively, properly in the courts of law. By John Adams, By defending John Adams, the British, right? Defending the British, which was probably something that the cousins, certainly something the cousins discussed between themselves. Right. The Boston Massacre happens in March. The case is finally tried in October and November of that year, having been delayed so that tempers would cool a little bit before things went to trial. After these soldiers are exonerated, Adams spends six months publishing in the paper, most of it under the pseudonym Vindex, in which he basically retries the entire case and decides everyone was guilty. And, you know, his reasons are kind of hilarious in retrospect. You know, it's like, you know, how could these people, this jury was not formed of Bostonians. How could they know the characters in question? Some of the officer's friends sat on the jury. One of the victims who on his deathbed says, I understood why they fired on me because the soldiers were being basically tortured by the civilians. Adams says, how can we take him at his word? A, he wasn't under oath, and B, he was a Roman Catholic. I mean, you know, there's a lot here to object to. But essentially, he's not going to let this rest. I mean, this has been adjudicated. Everyone's happy. All of Boston has quieted. There are two, two and a half years there where all opposition ceases, except for Samuel Adams. Mm. So that's and, propaganda, I would say. Yeah. And I would, I'm making this up, obviously, but I would think that people reading this in Philadelphia or New York maybe didn't even really understand that there had been a trial at which they had been acquitted. It's hard to know that, but it is certain that all of those Boston papers were being read assiduously by the other by the mm -hmm. other colonies. I mean, Boston really has the lock on the press. I mean, as one Crown official will say, how do you how can you 
legislate a town with five newspapers. I mean, it is because in large part, Boston has this immensely active press that they are able to be as effective and as obstreperous as they are. What I want to try to think about now is this. A few years ago, I, I think maybe when Trump was elected, I decided to read the Federalist Papers and Common Sense, which I would highly recommend reading. It's like both are incredibly readable. And so I started doing research about common sense. And I mean, there were all sorts of speculative numbers about how many copies it sold. But by some accounting, it would be the equivalent of selling six and a half million copies of a book today, extrapolating the population. That sounds good. I like that number. Right. And You know, I think I read that there were only 75,000 literate people in the colonies at that time, but so I'm not sure how it all reconciles. But what I'm curious about, Stacey, is so Samuel Adams is riling everybody up. And were they asking for independence from England, or did Thomas Paine's common sense, and he had only gotten here from England in 1774, where he absolutely was advocating for independence. To what extent did the combination make it work? To what extent did one fuel the other? And all of a sudden, there was a fast forward of, okay, that's it. We want independence. We don't want representation. We don't want to show up in Parliament. We want independence. Interestingly, almost everyone who leaves a good deal of colonial paper, other than Samuel Adams, will mention when he crossed the Rubicon, or she crossed the Rubicon. I think Mauricio Otis Warren also mentions a Rubicon. And at that point, they decide that it is not resistance that they're after. It's not redress. It's independence. Samuel Adams is one of the few people who never draws that line. And the understanding has always been that when soldiers marched into Boston in 1768, that's when he suddenly Mm. sees a sovereign nation is what's necessary. There's nothing in the papers that actually supports that. On the other hand, the word independence was not a word you would have committed to paper easily in these years. I mean, it was a dangerous word. When you're fomenting revolution, you don't exactly, you know, commit this to paper. He does mention independence as finally after troops arrive as something from which the British should shy. They should be smarter than this because they are essentially going to scare us into independence. But that's the only time he really ever mentions it. Um, I, he's, he says after Lexington and Concord, he's basically aching for independence. At that point, he thinks independence should have been declared the following morning. But until that moment, it's very unclear. It seems still as if there should be a way to recalibrate this relationship short of actual separation of the two countries. Were he and Thomas Paine acquainted, collaborating in any way? There's an edition of Paine which has Adams's writings in it as well, but I don't know. It's very hard to say if the two of them Mm. were in any... um, I don't think there's any collaboration, certainly, but it's hard to know if the two would have seen, would have met each other. Just as an an aside, and again, I don't remember, I I think you mentioned this in the book, but I looked up the Copley painting of Samuel Adams. So Samuel Adams in this painting is wearing a red outfit, not an outfit, a suit, I guess, and is sort of off to the side with a very mischievous, what I would consider mischievous look. What what did you make of that look in that painting and that Copley painted it that way? 
So there's a reason that painting is not on the jacket of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a, you know, that painting is a funny thing. If, if you know a lot about art and if you know about, a lot about Singleton Copley's career, you think of that painting as a monumentally important painting. It's a history painting. It's Adams portrayed as he is in a very heroic moment after the Boston Massacre, the morning after the Boston Massacre, when it falls to him representing the town to go call on Thomas Hutchinson, then the acting governor, to tell him he has to evacuate the troops because if the troops don't leave, there'll be blood on on every street of Boston after they have fired on civilians. And it's a two-part visit. Adams makes the trip across town. He meets with Hutchinson and his council. Hutchinson says, okay, I'll take out one regiment. And Adams goes back to the meeting and then he's sent back again and insists on two regiments. And it's as John Adams tells us, it's this moment that's out of, you know, Livy or Thucydides. It's just this extraordinary moment of Adams insisting and, and Hutchinson having to crumple before him. So it's really this moment of Adams in his greatest glory getting the better of a royal, of an acting royal governor. And that's the moment that Copley chooses to portray him in. John Adams tells us that when Sam Adams speaks, he he pulls himself up to his full height and declaims, and that is exactly how he's portrayed. You also notice in this painting that it is the shabbiest red suit you've ever seen. Yeah. It looks like it's going to fly away. he wasn't away. a good dresser. No, we, by his own description, he yeah. was not a good dresser. Exactly. More, he took pride in it, More right? on that in a minute. Yes, if you could, if he ever took pride, because he was a very modest man, that that is something in which he took pride. Um, but he wasn't cl- even shabby chic. No, distinctly not. I don't think shabby chic was a was thing a in Boston. No, yeah. no. But in one hand, he has his, you know, the, the Massachusetts Charter. In the other hand, is the instructions of the town. And it really is. And there are these classic, classic columns behind him. And it really is Adams in a sort of heroic, you know, ancient mode. And that painting, in fact, was probably commissioned by John Hancock, with whom Adams has a very unusual and uneasy relationship. And it hangs in Hancock's house with a, with a Copley portrait of Hancock. Because John only, Hancock was a dandy. John Hancock was quite, as a non-friend said, an egregious trifler, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, very few people had anything good to say about John Hancock among Other his contemporaries. His handwriting. Exactly. <laughs> Adams is such a shabby dresser that when he's about to leave for the Continental Congress, Massachusetts clearly doesn't want to be represented by this, you know, figure of kind of penniless despair. And so we know that, and we have this from two different accounts, this kind of fairy tale procession comes to his door. First a tailor arrives, and then a wig maker arrives, and then a shoemaker arrives. And nobody will say who sent them. Some mysterious benefactor has sent them all. And they take Adams's measure, and then several days later arrives at his doorstep this enormous trunk with his name on it, which is his, his new wardrobe for Philadelphia. Because clearly the dignity of Massachusetts would have been impaired had Samuel Adams appeared in his usual attire. Outfit. So, yeah, that tells us about shabby chic. Now, although you don't do this in the book, and it sounds unfair what I'm going to do, we're going to get right past the Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress. That's, that's really unimportant. Yeah, yeah, it's really not that important. And we're going to go to Act 3. So Adams served in Congress. He was then the governor of Massachusetts. Yet, seemingly, he was more suited to rebellion than statesmanship. And the third act actually ended up undermining his reputation and his standing and and felt sad to me. 
it's very poignant. It's as if the third act is as unsatisfying, to my mind anyway, as the first act, in that he has, he lives a very long time. He lives to his 80s. His great years are behind him. He has very mixed feelings about federalism. He feels very much a Massachusetts man, more than a sort of an American. He's still looking back to sort of old world simplicity, and America has moved ahead to new world luxury. So he's very much out of step with what's happening around him. And he does something which is ill-advised, which is when when John Adams says to him, you know, your writings of those 40 years are the crucial writings. You need to collect those because everyone, you know, across the world is going to want to read them. Samuel Adams never collects his papers. So he, and that's an inexplicable, we don't know why, he leaves the history to others. And so because the history is left to others, the opinions of others, and in this case, largely John Hancock, with whom the relationship is poisoned toward the end, prevails. And he is very much either left out of the picture or slandered by various people. And there's actually a very sort of touching point where he begins to read the the first histories of the revolution. He's reading in his lifetime and, you know, he's having this feeling that I'm sure some of us can relate to where he's reading history in which he figured, but it didn't happen the way he knows it happened. So there's already a sense that he's, that he's just, he's fallen out of the picture and knows it himself. You know, the other thing that you can help but think about as you're reading this, where there's so much conversation in contemporary in this moment about our democracy and what the founding fathers meant, what they didn't mean. And it made me think about what would Samuel Adams think about the United States and its government now? Would he be surprised at at who we are? Would Would he see who we are as an extension of what he fought to create? I think there are a lot of different avenues here. First of all, in the sense that his faith was hugely important to him, yes and no. I think he would be surprised to see what we have done as a, you know, with religion in terms of the government. I think political parties would have astonished any one of the founders because there were no political parties. So the idea that we could be so polarized would be shocking and and obviously disorienting. But I think the thing with Adams that would most offend and anger is income inequality because it was the one thing, I mean, the ordinary man having a voice in government, privilege stepping aside and making way for genius and industry, doing away with a privileged elite. I mean, he very much saw this tight circle of intermarried Boston merchants as the face of tyranny. They, for him, were the representation of what he was fighting abroad. The idea that the ordinary man wasn't going to get a fair shot, I think that would have been agonizing for him. The other thing that it made me think about, we had a panel many, many years ago, 21 years ago, it was right after 9-11, and the speakers were Paul Kennedy, Harold Coe, and Strobe Talbot. And the conversation was about one man's revolutionary is another man's terrorist. And so I'm thinking about Adams and the others who were revolutionaries. And there's so much conversation now about what is it that we're fighting for and who's a patriot, which, and your book, by the way, just as an aside, reminds us what patriotism is in its purest sense, not in the kind of corrosive way that some conversations about patriotism take place. But 
It made me want to ask you, who do you think is out there today in the United States that would be considered a revolutionary, but in the spirit of Samuel Adams? I don't have an obvious answer for you. I want to go back to the revolutionary thing in a second. I was asked the other night, who could unite us as a country um, in the way that That's a good Adams question. and his contemporaries. Before <laughs> I could even stumble my way toward an answer, someone in the audience yelled out, Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> so I'm not even going to try to answer yeah, that yeah. one either. Um, you know, Adams is very clear about something, which I think sort of speaks to your question, because I don't know who that person, offhand who that person is, but I'll think of it in the car as I leave tonight, which is that he's alive, obviously, during Shays' Rebellion. So he's alive when there is later uprising. And he, the man of great street protests and, and any number of insidious uprisings, absolutely loses it with Shays' Rebellion, because this is an example of people upending an, a freely elected government in which they have participated. And he draws a very distinct line between that kind of violence and and what he had been advocating, which is essentially fighting back against, you know, an arbitrary, something that's imposed on you from abroad in which you do not participate. So that is a very, very clear line, which, you know, I think is too easily forgotten. But your point about patriotism is, you know, you went back to read the Federalist Papers and I set out to write a book on Samuel Adams for that same reason, because I, I thought it was time to reclaim yeah. the word. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that. Despite the ridiculous, ironic coincidence that you were born in Adam's mass. What is it that motivated you to really resurrect Samuel Adams? I mean, I think I've read lots of biographies, but I am in that group of, I don't, I don't remember why Samuel Adams, what, what his role even was. So what motivated you to resurrect him? I'm not a beer drinker, so that was not the obvious yeah. answer. It was, was funny that his father did have a... It was a monster. Yes. Oh, a monster. <laughs> I think it was largely two things. One was, I'd done a book years ago on Benjamin Franklin, and I was working right. with it for another project. And Adams has a cameo in that book. And I was, you know, it suddenly mortified that, indeed, I am from Adams, Massachusetts, and I knew so little about him. And I went back to read what his contemporaries had said. And when you when you read any any of the people who, whom he knew, but especially Adams and Jefferson, John Adams and Jefferson you get these amazing um, tributes to how essential he was, how the revolution cannot be described without him. And when you put him back in the picture, it's a different revolution. And then when you read the Crown officials talking about how central and obstreperous and impossible he is, you really get a sense of how much of how integral he is to the whole revolutionary cause and how he creates that cause before there's even a revolution. So that sort of change in thinking and how one affects that change in thinking was something that I mean, obviously, it was 2016. We were all thinking, I think, a lot about democracy and about, you know, protests in the streets and, and ideas and how ideas evolve. But it also had sort of fallen out of the witchcraft book because one of the things that surprised me when I was working on the Salem Witch Trials was how slowly dissent finally surfaces that year. The trials begin early in, in the summer of 1692. They end in the fall. But people raise their hands only very cautiously and anonymously to say something is amiss here. There can't be this many witches in Massachusetts. The court must be disbanded because to express skepticism at that point was obviously to invite a witchcraft accusation. Mm -hmm. And one of the first people to raise his hand and have the courage to say, this is a miscarriage of justice. If girls are saying that they see something with their eyes closed, they're not seeing it. They're imagining it was a Bostonian named Thomas Brattle. And 
Brattle somehow in my, reminded me in many ways of Samuel Adams. So there was this sense of who is that person who stands up when all the wheels have come off and actually, you know, is, is not afraid to speak up and has the resolution to pursue that quest. And that was partly what I think what led me back to Adams. One of your other biographies that I loved was the biography of Cleopatra. And I happened to read it at the same time I was reading a biography of Catherine the Great by Bob Massey. So Catherine the Great left like almost a dozen diaries and volumes of her writings. Cleopatra Nothing. You got nothing. Not and even a single, maybe a single word. We maybe have one maybe, word. Maybe, maybe a single word. Like we think Cleopatra is Elizabeth Taylor, you know, and that's what we know about Cleopatra until we read your book. Well, like that, you didn't have much to go on with Samuel Adams of his own word, his own papers or of what he was thinking. So how did you build the research of... You know, because this is a very extensive biography with an enormous amount of detail that relates back to Samuel Adams. It reminded, the research for this book reminded me very much of the work on Cleopatra mm. in that, for starters, you're working a lot from his enemies. Samuel Adams didn't remind you of Elizabeth Taylor, No, but I, but I do feel as if, the, I, I do feel as if the beer has done for Samuel Adams what Elizabeth Taylor did for Cleopatra in the sense that when you Google Sam Adams, you get the beer. You don't get the man. Why did they name it? Why did they name the beer Samuel Adams? Because, I'm sorry for no, this, no, like, <laughs> non sequitur. Because of a very formative U.S. history teacher who really liked Sam Adams. And, and so when Jim was looking for a name, he was either thinking Adams or Hancock. And apparently Adams is a better bar call than Hancock. Or so he told me. Because for a minute I was thinking, oh, Samuel Adams' father was a maltster. And maybe Samuel Adams' beer is some, you know, multi-generational, but I, I, think I looked Jim it thinks up. that he wanted to, to liberate beer the way Samuel Adams liberated um, right. um, the colonies. Um, th it was very similar research in the sense that there's a paucity of material. Yeah. Um, there's a horrible moment that John Adams describes for us of sitting at the Continental Congress watching Samuel Adams feed his papers to the fire so that none of his colleagues will be compromised. And then he, on another occasion, he's cutting them up into little shreds and just littering them out the window. So that was a lot of my material somewhere in the streets of Philadelphia many years ago. Um, what we do have is we have the other side of, the, we have the correspondence to Samuel Adams, which is in the New York Public Library. And that's actually, I'm not sure anyone has ever really used it. It's extremely rich. I mean, we have his, his wife's letters to him for example. His first wife or second, second wife? Second wife. Betsy. Second wife's letters. And she's very much of the Abigail Adams school, very resolute and, and you know, un, undaunted at all times. And there's a lot in that material which tells us how beloved he is, how much people were extremely careful with him and took care of him. For example, when he's in Philadelphia at one point and the British are in Boston, a friend writes him and says, I, I stopped at your house the other day and I removed all the papers so that those vultures would have nothing to prey upon. I mean, he's clearly mm. revered in many ways. So that's a great wealth of material. And then the other big treasure chest, in a way, is the British archives. Because although they, and this is where the Cleopatra thing felt familiar, although they are at all times complaining about him and 
actually writing rather unflatteringly about him, all of the Crown officers are very descriptive of what he's up to and how the minute he lands... Or their take on it. Their take on it. But when he lands in the Massachusetts House of Representatives, it suddenly speaks with a very different voice, and that is the voice of Samuel Adams, of how Samuel Adams seems always to walk around with a you know piece of legislation sitting in his pocket for whenever he needs it and can pull it out, of how he reroutes a committee that's meant to be doing one thing and suddenly is doing something else, of what great glory he's in the morning after the Boston Tea Party. I mean, there's just a wealth of, of setting him right what in the fun. middle of the scene. Yeah, that and that's great. All crumbling and, you know, has that delicious smell, which is actually the smell of paper disintegrating in your hands. Yeah. So speaking of paper disintegrating in your hands, I mean, it's hard to imagine what future biographers are going to use for material because there's not going to be crumbling pieces of paper um, to any degree. I don't know how you archive, accessibly archive emails or tweets or, well, tweets probably live forever, but what does that look like? Do you worry about how future biographers are going to be able to write a biography about somebody with any firsthand material? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for a while, I just thought there was this kind of great server in the sky where all emails were, you know, downloading as we as we live. But yes, don't no one, you, do, doesn't somebody wish? Some Right. But, you know, yes, everyone should print the important emails. I mean, A, there's going to be too much material. Part of the problem is that the wealth of the documentation can sometimes hide the truth. So that the, just the fact that there is such a massive material makes yeah. it harder. A massive immaterial material makes it harder. And secondly, the fact that, yes, so much evaporates. I mean, I feel like there's a sweet spot between the invention of the typewriter and the invention of email. And that's where every you know smart person should be working because everything is legible and everything is still permanent. Yeah. I would not wish, you know, 18th century handwriting on anybody. I can't, I, yeah, I, I can't, I can't even imagine that. Stacy. there's so much more that we could cover. And it's, as I sort of joked about, we skipped over the Declaration of Independence and, and 1776 and, and Congress. And, you, you know, your book has been described as riveting, engrossing, fast-paced, enthralling. It deserves every one of those adjectives. I've obviously read it for the interview, but I want to go back and read it for me because it made me feel great about our country, which I did before. I just worry now. But it also reminds you of how things happen and how people of of the role of being brave, because it was, it would have been very easy to be complicit. Very easy to be complicit and very easy at times when things faltered to have just fallen into line. Yeah. So that is why I say that the undaunted courage of this, you know, remains to me so sterling. Exactly. Yeah. So Stacy, thank you so much. We've been talking with Stacy Schiff, the author of the revolutionary Samuel Adams. Thanks so much. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. 
can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was Just the Right Book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.